So uh, we've talked about this before, but the Hebrew language does something really kind of interesting, and I won't dive too much into it right now. Maybe one of these days we'll really unpack it in a message, but Hebrew language does this interesting thing where it doesn't just tell you how to say the word, it actually, the letters give you a little bit of, of an inclination of the definition of the word. My dad, who's the one who figured this out in more recent history, calls this Hebrew word pictures. Um, and the Hebrew word picture for, the ancient Hebrew word for love, or one of them anyway, is ahav. Uh, that's the word. And, and the word picture, it's actually the, the, the word for father, the first and last letters. And then right in the middle of it is a symbol of a man with his hands lifted up. And, and that letter uh, has, has the connotations of to behold or to reveal. And so the word picture for the Hebrew word love is to behold or to reveal the father. And that blew my mind a couple weeks ago when I was studying for this message and I saw that. Because I immediately thought of this moment a few, week, a few months prior when it was two or three in the morning uh, and my infant son was awake, as infant sons do at two or three in the morning, and he was crying, as babies do at two or three in the morning. And since he was awake and he was crying and he was grumpy, that meant that, meant that my wife was awake and she was crying and she was grumpy, which meant that I was awake and I was crying and I was grumpy. We're all crying. We're all grumpy. No one's sleeping. Everyone's confused. No one knows what's going on. Right? And so my wife said, he's not hungry. I already fed him. Okay, okay. So I kind of get up. I take off my CPAP because I'm an old guy and I snore. All right? So deal with it. You know, I got a CPAP on. I take my mask off. I'm really confused. I don't fully understand what's going on, but I know that there's a crying baby and I know what that means. That means that I go over there and I, and I reach down into his crib and I pick him up and he's crying and I'm crying and everyone says, okay, there wasn't as much crying. I mean, he was doing the crying. We were just crying a little bit. Um, and I pick him up, and I'm holding him, and I start rocking him, and I'm doing some of this. And he begins to calm down a little bit, and he does a little cute little baby, like, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I'm holding him, and as, I, as I'm holding my son, I'm confused and groggy, and I don't know what's going on. But all of a sudden, I just find myself drowning in love for this kid. And as I just start drowning in my love for him, I, I actually start to have a conversation with the Lord, even though I'm really groggy and confused still. And I just feel like the Lord says to me, this is to show you how much I love you. This love that you're drowning in right now. And, and then as, as he was saying that, I felt like the Lord then started taking all of the different loves that I'd experienced over the course of my life and he starts pulling them in front of my mind and of my heart, right? The love that I had as a kid for my parents, the love that I have now for my parents, the love for my brother and sister, the love that I've had for friends. It's a different kind of love than brother and sister, but then sometimes that love has grown into the exact same kind of love that I've had for brother and sister, right? The love that I've had for friends that are like uh, shoulder to shoulder in the trenches, common cause, that kind of love, the, the kind of love for, for people that you have that you're just so familiar with. You've lived years adjacent to them, right? And I don't know what movie this is from, but the metaphor of like, they just fit like an old shoe, right? Like it's a weird but kind of beautiful metaphor, right? That kind of love. And then the, kind, the kinds of love that I've had in my relationship with my wife. Many of those same kinds of love have been existent in my relationship with my wife, but also a few really specific ones to that relationship, right? A romantic love, a sexual love. And then now here at this point in my life, a, a new love. The kind of love of, of a father for his son, of a parent for their child. And I feel like the Lord is saying to me in this moment, three in the morning, that all of these different loves are me showing you a different way, a different angle, a different perspective of my love for you. All of these different loves are woven together to reveal the father. And I'm just struck with the beauty in this moment 
of how God has orchestrated the entire human experience and one of the most powerful transcendent things that is common to all mankind just to reveal himself to us. It's like love is his version of a love song, right? When we want to tell someone we love them, it's not enough to tell them, so we sing a song and we use all of these different things to try to express that we love them. And it doesn't really, it's not enough to say I love you it's a good and a powerful thing, just as it's not enough for God to reveal himself to us by simply saying, I am that I am. As powerful as that is, he needs more to get closer. And even still, all that he is isn't revealed, just like a love song doesn't really fully express your love. And I think it's really important that we understand all of these loves, that we master these different kinds of love and the intimacies that come along with them, and that we really wrap our minds around them, that we create a taxonomy of these things and, and start to, to figure them out. We're actually at a major disadvantage in this regard in English, right? English is one of the languages in the world that even though it's super precise, we're, we're really deficient in this regard. We only have one word for love, where a lot of other languages have many different words for these exact same things, not different degrees of love, not different strengths of love, but different kinds kinds of love, like the love between parent and child, the love between spouses, the love between friends, a, a giving kind of love, like this kind of transcendent sort of love shows up in a lot of languages too in some really beautiful ways. And, and we have this problem that we have a tendency to conflate these loves in our society. Uh, David recommended a couple weeks ago a book uh, called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, and I could not more highly recommend that book to you. Uh, she does a beautiful and masterful job of intelligently as, as well as like relationally dealing with some of the questions, most of the questions that our society has for us, has for the Bible, has for Jesus. Uh, we usually have that out in the courtyard. We're out of it actually today, but we'll have some of it next week. Or you can just go on Amazon. We just buy them on Amazon and sell them to you at cost because we value, you know, having a church that, that is digging in uh, to understanding, that is reading, that is learning, that is growing together. Um, so I'd really highly recommend you, you read that book. But in the book Confronting Christi Christianity, Re Rebecca McLaughlin says this. She says, and I'm paraphrasing her. She says, you know, we, we have a tendency to conflate intimacies in our society. And, and in particular, we have this problem where we have a tendency to believe that sexual intimacy is the ultimate form of intimacy. But it's not the ultimate form of intimacy. Sexual intimacy is a ultimate form of intimacy. Um, and she uses a, a really heavy but effective analogy for this, right? She says that, that you know, uh, uh, almost anybody who's ever had a child will tell you that the love between parent and child is every bit as intimate as the love between spouses. But when you take the sexual intimacy that is so right and so healthy and so good and so powerful and creates so much intimacy between spouses, when you take that sexual intimacy and you introduce it into the relationship between parent and child, it doesn't create intimacy, it poisons it, doesn't it? And I would say it, it, it would do the same in many other relationships. So if you take two friends who have an intimate connection, who love each other, who care for each other, who've been close to each other, brothers in, in arms, you know, shoulder in shoulder, fits like an old shoe kind of friendship, and you introduce sexual intimacy into that, it doesn't create intimacy, it, it poisons it. Maybe not as earth-shatteringly as it would between parent and child, maybe not as immediately as it would, but, but for sure it will ultimately poison. it. In fact, sexual intimacy, when you put it in any kind of love other than a covenant marriage between a man and a woman, it ultimately has a poisoning effect. 
Why is that? Because sexual intimacy, like all the other intimacies, like all the other loves, is meant to reveal the Father in a unique way, from a unique perspective, from a unique vantage point. Sexual intimacy, among many other things, what it does is it reveals the sacredness, the holiness, the covenant nature of God's love for us. God is not a God who cheats on us. And when we cheat in sexual intimacy, we actually, what's revealed is not the Father, uh, but a distortion of the Father. In fact, when we get any of these intimacies or any of these things wrong, it doesn't reveal the Father, it's distortion the Father. So sexual intimacy, it's meant to reveal how much he is dedicated to us, how much he doesn't cheat on us, how much all of him belongs to us and all of us ought to belong to him. And, and at the same time, it represents something beautiful of the love across great difference of God. God is not the same as us, even though God is similar to us. Right? And the difference between us and God is not well articulated by the difference simply between personality. But the fundamental sameness and the fundamental difference that exists between man and woman is something that represents, that points to, that reveals the fundamental sameness and difference between us and God. It is the love between a husband and a wife represents God loving across the difference of the divine and humanity. And when we distort this in any way, it ultimately does introduce a poison to the intimacy it will poison whatever intimacy pre-existed it, unless, again, it's covenant marriage between man and woman. This is God's love for us that he's revealing. This is God's love for us that he's actually saying, this is the beautiful and the right and the good way that this happens. And, and, and this is a problem for us that we live in a society that tends to believe that all intimacy ends in sexual intimacy. I, oh man, how are we supposed to be close to each other and love each other well if that's our understanding, if we're so distorted, if our parents haven't taught us well, if the world around us hasn't taught us well. We've been drowning in this conflation of intimacy in our society for, as far as I can tell, at least 60 years, right? The sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s, uh, it, it promised intimacy. What it created was loneliness, right? And, and we're in the middle of another sexual revolution at this particular point in time in our, in our, our culture, aren't we? That's been both of these sexual revolutions of the 1960s and 70s and the one we're going through right now have been chiefly concerned with shedding off the boundaries to sexual intimacy. And the problem is, is though it's promised more intimacy, what it's created is a poisoning of intimacies. You can look uh, to, to the phrases of, of the, both sexual revolutions that take advantage of the ambiguity of the English language, the only having one word for love, right? In the 1960s and 70s, it was free love and more recently, it's love is love. Both of these phrases, who can argue with them? They're so beautiful, so powerful, so strong, right? Free love, yes, love ought to be free, like freely given, freely received, extended to all humanity, even strangers. Like we should love freely. That's so good and so right and so powerful until you realize that free love means more than that. It also means let's remove the boundaries to sexual love and sexual intimacy. And we can see how this played out in the communes, right? Where people loved freely, they shared everything, and there was beautiful community, beautiful intimacy in the communes of the 1960s and 70s until they began to share each other's beds. And things got twisted and broken, and they got jealous and insecure. And this is one of the main reasons why you don't see a lot of communes around today. Because the sexual intimacy outside of where it belongs poisoned the pre-existing intimacies. And so, yes, free love, but no, not free love in that way. And, and more recently, we've been saying love is love as we've shed off more boundaries to sex and sexual intimacy and sexual love. And, and we say love is love, and yes, how good, how true, how wonderful. Love is love. Love is transcendent. To what can you, to what can you compare love other than love? 
because nothing else is, 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 is at that level. And, and, and love is so powerful. And yes, all love is so valuable and so necessary. And love is love until you realize that what love is love means to some extent is, or, or really what they're intending to say with that is, is that all loves are the same as all loves. And I think we could at least agree that there is a kind of love between spouses that is not the same, that should not be the same as the love between parent and child, right? When a husband and a wife kiss each other, it should not be the same as when a parent kisses their child. There is a difference. There really needs to be. And if there's not, it poisons intimacy. And, and the, the same is true again of, of yes, like, like can two men love each other in a particular way? Yes, there's beautiful, powerful, awesome things that happen when men love each other, when win, women love each other. Yes, absolutely. The, the Bible calls for this intimacy between brothers and sisters in a powerful way. It calls us to this intimacy. But when two men love each other the way a husband loves a wife, when two women love each other the way a li- wife loves her husband, whether or not it's apparent to you immediately, Slowly but surely, there is a poison introduced to the intimacy that preexisted. And it is God's love for us that he tells us, no, 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 don't do that. If you love the woman you love, if you love the man you love, you won't do this. And you won't poison the intimacy that exists between you. Um, And one of the problems for us is that Jesus calls us uh, to love one another. Jesus calls it, he says that we would be known by our love for one another that the church is called to be a place of intimacy, that we're called to be the kind of people who can have many close, tight-knit, intimate relationships with each other. But if we live in a world that has conflated intimacy and believes whether we can understand in our head or, and disentangle it in our heart or not, that we believe that all intimacy has its ultimate uh, representation, its ultimate realization in sexual intimacy, how can I be intimate with you? How can we be close friends and brothers and sisters without running the risk of like getting conflated? Like, How can we be near each other? Don't we have to stay really far away from each each other so we don't conflate it? Can we, don't we have to not open our hearts so things don't turn sexual? Because if we open our hearts and it has to be sexual because that's the next step. How do we do this? Well, the good news for you and me is that this is not a new question for followers of Jesus. This is not a new problem for Christians. In fact, this was a major problem in the early church. I think we have a tendency to romanticize the early church, to think that here we had a bunch of really good people who were awesome, who were great, who really lived really pretty decent lives, and then they heard the gospel, and then they lived really holy, awesome lives. And any of the problems that they had before, they disappeared, and they interacted with each other wonderfully, and nobody sinned ever again, and everything was great and clean and beautiful and wonderful. But if that's your perspective of the early church, you've not been reading the New Testament very well. Um, it, was, it was messy. It was messy before. It was messy after. Paul found it necessary to tell the Corinthians, hey, just, just to clarify, sleeping with your mother-in-law, that's not good. You, sh- you shouldn't do that. I think that indicates something about the messiness, right? The ancient Greco-Roman world, you know, where many of most of the, the early Christians where they were coming out of, as well as the Jewish world, which conflated intimacies in some unique ways. But the ancient Greco-Roman world was even more problematic with its conflation of intimacy than ours. It was even more overly sexualized than ours. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, um, it, men had rooms in their house that were specifically devoted to sleeping with people who were not their wives. Um, it wasn't considered adultery if it, was, uh, if it was with a slave, if it was with a child. And I'm sorry for this, this is a bit graphic, but it wasn't considered adultery if you weren't the one being penetrated. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, pedophilia wasn't considered taboo, it was the norm. 
And I think if we think about that for just a, a quick second, we can extrapolate from that that probably a very large number of the first believers in Jesus had been sexually abused as children. And even worse, uh, some of them, maybe many of them, had done that to children before they came to know Jesus. These were broken people. There was a powerful contingent of women in the ancient Greco-Roman world who had come to believe that the only way for them to have any liberation was to weaponize their sexuality against the world. This was a very broken world. And the authors of the New Testament knew this, and they were very concerned with this pastorally speaking. I can find at least five of the letters in the New Testament that are addressing this exact situation in a particularly unique passage, or, uh, pattern. Um, so let me read what uh, Peter says about this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. To the end of all, the end of all things is at hand. At hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so what is Peter saying? He's saying, hey guys, we've had enough time for the orgies and the drunkenness and the parties and the immorality. Let's move on to earnest love. Let's move on to this holy, godly kind of love. And let's serve each other. Let's have hospitality without grumbling. Let's, if you have a gift, use it to serve one another. Let's love one another earnestly. Okay, I'm with you, but how do I do that? Because, again, the world I grew up in has been so twisted. For the, ancient, uh, for the early church, it was all the stuff we just talked about it. For us, it's, it's these sexual revolutions. It's this, this confusion that maybe all of my friendships uh, could and maybe many of them should turn sexual. Maybe it's good for me to be attracted to this and this and this and that and that and that and this person and that person. Maybe who I'm attracted to or what I'm attracted to, maybe this has something to do with who I am. If, if I'm, I'm living in this world, how do, I, how do I be close to someone and not conflate it with sexual intimacy? This is a problem for us, right? And uh, there are so many statistics I would love to dive in, and, and I think Ryan and I might try to do a podcast in the next week or two so we can dig into some of this stuff. But uh, let me just say this. There is a, an incredibly shocking correlation in our society with the shedding off of sexual boundaries, boundaries to sexual intimacy, and the loneliness we're experiencing. We've been shedding more and more and more sexual boundaries ever since the 60s, and we've been getting more and more and more lonely. And then more recently, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, we've been shedding off uh, those boundaries at an even faster rate, and we've been getting shockingly even more lonely. Gen Z, the generation that grew up, uh, that became, became teenagers kind of just after we shed a bunch of these, uh, these boundaries to sexual intimacy, Gen Z is the loneliest generation in a very long time. And Gen Z, I, interestingly enough, is also the least sexually active generation in a long time, while at the same time they hold the least boundaries to sexuality out of any generation. So, so they think having sex with you know, whoever, whatever, whenever is, is, is good and perfectly fine and acceptable, and yet they choose to have less sexual intimacy than anybody else. And I think that the reason for that is because the sexual intimacy outside of the bounds of covenant marriage between man and woman has poisoned so much intimacy for this generation. 
And so they're just giving up. They're giving up on all kinds of intimacy. They're just taking their ball and going home. So what, how, do, how do we fix this? What's the solution? Well, the good news, again, is that this is all over the New Testament. It's not just First Peter. As far as I can tell, there's probably more epistles. I didn't even look as closely as I could have. But at least First Peter, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, and First Corinthians all deal with this exact same question in a really surprisingly similar pattern. They all say, like Peter, no to immorality and then yes to earnest love. And then they give really specific relationship advice. Right? Peter, right after the verses we read, says, hey, husbands, this is how you love your wives. Hey, wives, this is how you love your husbands. Elsewhere, it talks about you know, parents, how you love your kids, and brothers and sisters, how you love each other. How do, how do you care for the widows and the orphans in your society? How do you be close and intimate with each other? Even the more complicated, like how does a master and a servant who both come to Jesus, how do they love each other? It gets into, the, into these weeds. And, and then, which honestly in the pattern is usually towards the beginning of this train of thought, it gives the solution the mechanism by which the early church could go from immorality to earnest love. And so I want to read uh, some of those passages out of some of those, uh, those epistles and the solution that's offered, the solutions that are offered, which really do weave together, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, so First Peter, verses 4, 1 through 2, just before the verses we read a moment ago, Peter says this, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of time uh, in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter says, hey, Jesus suffered in the flesh. Put on that way of thinking, that self-sacrificing love way of thinking for the will of God. This is the will of God. Colossians 3, 9 through 10, it says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So he's saying, hey, put off the old self, sacrifice that, put on the new self being renewed in the image of your creator. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's saying, hey, be imitators of God. Learn self-sacrificing love from Jesus. Be his children. Walk in love. Uh, and lastly, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What are these all saying? They're all saying something about like being transformed by the renewal of your mind, by learning what is the will of God. They're all talking about learning sacrifice from Jesus and, and intimacy, right? Imitate God, be children, walk in love. They're all talking about these things. What are they all basically saying? They're all saying learn from Jesus self-sacrificing love by being near to him, by imitating him, by being his children. I would say this, perhaps we could say it this way. Intimacy with Jesus will realign our understanding of love. Intimacy with Jesus will realign our understanding of love. I, I want to read to you guys a story of a woman uh, in the Gospel of Luke who went through this exact experience. Intimacy with Jesus, realigning her understanding of love. In Luke chapter 7, verses 33, sorry, 36 through 48, it says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, uh, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, there's some debate about this, but most scholars would agree she was probably a prostitute. 
Um, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, uh, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet her feet with my, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But who was, he was forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And so here's what happens. Here's, here's a little bit of a recap of what we just read, right? This, this Pharisee, this man named Simon, who's a, a, a religious guy who lived a pretty decent life, uh, he invites Jesus over, his, to his, over to his house. And when Jesus shows up, Simon actually kind of snubs him a little bit. He doesn't do what would have been normal to do if you were having a, a, a really respectable, honored guest to your house. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't greet him with a kiss. He's not excited to see him as would have been the norm. He doesn't have anybody, you know, clean Jesus' feet, wash his feet, or, or offer some oil to kind of freshen him up. These would have been normal things coming in from outside, just feeling fresh a bit, you know? He doesn't do these things for Jesus, his honored guest. But there's this woman who, you know, is probably a prostitute, who hears that Jesus is going to Simon the Pharisee's house. And she, I'm reading between the lines, but I would assume since Simon knows who she is, she knows that Simon knows who she is. She's got a reputation. She knows that she's not going to be welcome at Simon's house. But she wants to see Jesus anyway, so she goes. And she brings with her this perfume because she's going someplace that is kind of fancier than she's used to. And, and, and there's some you know, conversation about like, oh, where might this have perfume come from? Because this alabaster jar, it would have been really expensive. Some people say it might have been her inheritance or her dowry. If she was a prostitute, however, she got it, whether it was from wages or inheritance or dowry, I think we can assume, it's safe to assume, that it may have been a tool of the trade, right? Uh, women in prostitution, they understand that large investments in things like hair and clothes and perfume and shoes, uh, these, are, these are a part of the job. And so if she was a prostitute, it's likely that maybe every single night before going out and conflating intimacies, she would put a drop of this oil on herself so that when she was done conflating intimacies with a man, he would say, I like the way she smelled and pay her a little bit more. And so she takes this perfume to crash this party and she sees Jesus and again, reading between the lines, but I'm assuming that the moment she saw Jesus, something changed, something shifted, something broke in her heart. She falls in love with this man. And her understanding of love is realigned. And so she goes to Jesus and she falls at his feet and she begins weeping and kissing his feet. And she takes this perfume and she breaks it and pours every single drop out on his feet. Why? Because she is never going to need this again. No other drop of this will ever be for another man. All of this for him. Because she's learning a new kind of love. And she's not a guest in this house, so no one gives her a towel. So what does she do? She takes her hair down. And she wipes his feet with his hair. 
Now, in this culture at this time, this wouldn't have been appropriate for a woman to have let her hair down. It would have been pretty forward, pretty awkward, very intimate. I mean, even we can understand that washing someone's feet with your hair is intimate. But actually, if, if in, in some circles in the Jewish world at that time, if a woman was walking around in public with her hair uncovered, it would have been grounds for divorce. But she doesn't care. She has no shame because all she has is shame. And in this moment, all she's concerned with is loving Jesus. And it's interesting that in this story between uh, the man who was a pretty decent guy, a Pharisee, a religious guy, and the prostitute, it's the religious guy who conflates intimacy. It's the religious guy who conflates the intimacies, who doesn't know what he's looking at. He thinks what he's looking at is inappropriate. But this woman, this prostitute, she gets it right. She knows that what's happening here isn't sexual intimacy. It's not romantic intimacy. It's not even family intimacy. It's not even the intimacy of a child to their parent. This is the love. This is the intimacy to which all of those loves and all of those intimacies are pointing. It's the love of God. It's intimacy with Jesus. There's nothing wrong or, or twisted or distorted in this. It is beautiful. It is the Father revealed here in this moment. And what's the difference between him and her? Well, Jesus makes this clear. She loved much. The Pharisee conflated knowledge of God with knowing God. He conflated her intimacy with something that it was not. And he missed the intimacy to which all intimacies point. He missed the love to which all loves point. Intimacy with Jesus will realign our understanding of love. And you think this was, was the end, this, you think this is the point of the sermon, and, and it is in some significant ways a part of it, but it's, it's not the end of it. There's more to say because just like uh, the authors of the New Testament included this really specific relational advice, we need that too, right? We, we can understand that we need to go and learn intimacy from Jesus, and that'll realign our understanding of love. But what do we do? How do we do that? How do we move forward from that? Practically speaking, in specific relationships, well, I believe that the church is meant to be an oasis of intimacy in the middle of a desert of loneliness and sexual brokenness. And so I believe that in marriages, like how do we figure this out? What do we do in marriages, right? Like we've lived in a world that has conflated intimacy and there's been sexual brokenness all sorts of places and, and pornography addictions and sleeping with people that you weren't married to and maybe sleeping with your spouse before you got married. And so now there's a little bit of, of, of jealousy that that might happen with someone else or there's a little bit of insecurity of what might happen, you know, and then there's, there's all this confusion and there's a boundary in the sexual intimacy there. So what do we do? Well, well intimacy with Jesus will realign our understanding of love. I got a weird statistic for you here. Um, I warned you at the beginning of the message, you know. Uh, but it, I think it's a good statistic. It's a powerful one. Um, women who are married to evangelical men, and not just evangelical men, but evangelical men who attend church regularly, who are genuine, real disciples of Jesus, who are following Jesus and learning from him. Women who are married to these kind of men, uh, statistically speaking, most frequently and consistently report experiencing sexual satisfaction. It's a weird statistic. Good for you, ladies. Um, sorry, had to break the tension somehow there. Um, why is that? Well, I, I, I'm assuming, I, I think it's a little obvious if you think about it for a minute. I think it's because their husbands are learning something from Jesus. I think their husbands have learned that love is not about self-satisfaction, 
but it's about self-sacrifice. I think their husbands have learned that loving their wife is not about what, how she can please him and what she can do for him, but how he can please her and how he can lay his life down for her as Christ did the church. And I think they're learning this, yeah, in the bed, but also outside of that. Imperfectly so. I know we're failing. I know the trash didn't get taken out yesterday. But, but I think these husbands are learning that it's about laying themselves down for their wife and serving her. And I think they're learning this in all different facets of, of all relationships and all their loves. I think these wives, if they're following Jesus too, they're learning that, that love is not, for them, is not about self-satisfaction, but about self-sacrifice. They're learning to serve their husband in these ways. They're, and I think both of these, these husbands and these wives, they're probably learning to apply this to their relationship with their children and their parents and their brothers and sisters and the people at church and in their community and their coworkers and the strangers, that love is not about self-satisfaction. It's not about you do you. It's not about, it's not about self-care. It's not about the things that you you want and what you get out of this. It's about self-sacrifice. Learn self-sacrificing love from the one who laid his life down for us. And this restores sexual intimacy, but it also restores all intimacy. And and what about the fact that, you know, in our society, there are more and more and more people who are choosing to remain single or or simply are remaining single later and later in life and maybe forever. Well, that's that's an interesting thing. The church is the place, I believe, where some of them will come and, yeah, maybe they might find someone to get married to. But many of those people will come to the church and they won't. They'll either choose not to get married or they just simply will never figure it out. Nothing will ever connect for them. The church is the place where they can come and find that there's actually a holy calling in that. It's not a consolation prize, but there is a profound intimacy in the body of Christ. The church is the place where I'm hoping that they will find the intimacy of spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, where they'll find that the Bible actually speaks highly of singleness and says this is a wonderful thing, to lay down a desire for romantic love and and, and sexual love, to lay down that life in order to pursue God in a unique way. And, and you're not lacking in intimacy. You'll find the, the intimacy of the family of God, but you'll also find the intimacy to which all intimacies point, the intimacy of the love of God. And the church is the place where these people will find real family. In our society, more and more and more people are, are finding uh, themselves attracted to people of the same sex. Some people, because they've developed this, because culture has leaned into them. Some people, it's just a brokenness that, that, that is, is really in them pretty deep. And some of these people will come to the church and they may find the Lord is able to change their affections back to people of the, of the opposite sex. And they may even find a, a, a husband or a wife of the opposite sex that they can spend the rest of their life in a covenant relationship that reveals the Father. And it's in the particular way of kind of that self-sacrificing love across difference, right? I have, I have a friend who years ago, you know, he, he was in a small group full of men and, and he confessed to them that he had been living his life sleeping with men. And and those men, they got up and they embraced him and they held him and they wept together. And it was the beginning of, for him, this transformation. And actually, slowly but surely, he, he still finds himself attracted to men at times, but he found himself in love with this one particular woman and they've raised children together, had children and raised them and they love each other and they're honest about the brokenness is there been beautiful and redemptive. Some people will experience that, but others will come to the church and they'll simply find that, no, I don't get that healing. That doesn't change. I'm only attracted to men or I'm only attracted to other women. Just like some people are are healed and walk out of their wheelchair and others live the rest of their lives in the wheelchair. Some people will come to the church and they'll find that. 
And there's not just a consolation prize for them. They, the call for these individuals who are only attracted to people of the same sex as they follow Jesus is the same exact call as it is to every follower of Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. These men and women are called to deny the part of them that's broken in this way, like we all are, to pick up the, the thing that will kill them, the cross, the kill, that will kill that part of them, and to follow Jesus. And what they will find is intimacy. Hopefully the intimacy of spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. But even if the church fails them in that regard, they will find the intimacy to which all intimacy points. They will find the love to which all loves point. The love of God. Intimacy with Jesus. And in our society, there are more and more people these days who are getting tricked by the lie that in order to accept who they are, they're going to have to distort their body. People who are being deceived into believing that who they sleep with, who they're attracted with, and how they look on the outside has something to do with who they really are. And the church is the place where these men and women, I believe we're 5, 10, 15 years from a flood of this, where these young men and women are going to come and they're going to show up. And this is the place where they can find out that their identity is not in who they sleep with or what they look like on the outside or what they do to their body, but their identity is in Jesus and their identity is in the family of God. And these men and women, some of them are going to escape some of the ramifications of, of what might have happened to their body, what they might have chosen to do. Some of them won't. And they won't be able to have the children that they didn't know at the time that they wanted. And the, and the family of God is the place where they will find spiritual mothers and fathers who will teach them to be healthy and whole and beautiful and redeem spiritual mothers and fathers. And they will learn that intimacy. They will experience that intimacy. And I believe that, that these young men and women who can no longer have children will come to the church and they will come to learn the same exact love that I know when I hold my son because they will have spiritual sons and daughters and there is nothing that you can do to your body that is beyond the redemptive reach of Jesus. And there is no place in the world more intimate than this. And all these young men and all these young women and all the older men and older women who experience the same, they will find an intimacy in the family of God that cannot be found in anyone's bed. And how do we do this? I think we do this by being people who have an open door policy, people who set an extra place at the table and look for someone lonely to fill that place. People who choose to intentionally not be so busy because we're not so concerned with the promotion. We, we choose to not be so busy that we don't have time to sit and listen and have intimacy. People who do not fear intimacy because we've looked at Jesus and we've fallen in love with him and we're not confused that we're gonna conflate intimacy, but we can share hearts with people. We can share a holy kiss. And know exactly how it reveals the Father. Let's be these people. Let's be this church because Jesus loves the people who have conflated intimacies. And we are the hope. We are the hope that they have to find not loneliness but intimacy. Because we're the ones who can say, hey, there's Jesus. Go fall in love with him. Intimacy with him will realign your understanding of love.